Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of 1 Thessalonians. Let's go ahead now and look to the Word of God. Let's uh, begin our study here again in 1 Thessalonians and chapter 2 is where we'll be picking up here this evening. If you would, just agree with me once more in prayer as we begin. Father, we pause here now and give you thanks, Lord, for your Word. We praise you, Lord, for it. Uh, What a gift it is. And Lord, we are appreciative of how you bless us, how you care for us, how you speak to us, Lord, through your Word. And so, Lord, we uh, ask that you'd bless our time here uh, in our study of your Word tonight. Help us, Lord, to apply it to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this letter, the Apostle Paul, written to the church in Thessalonica, that uh, the Lord used him and others to establish and to found a church that was established in an incredibly short period of time. I mean, we're talking about roughly three weeks that the Apostle Paul spent here in this city, in Macedonia, along the Aegean Sea. He was there for three weeks in revival happened. The church was birthed, and not just a church that sort of struggled to get started. I mean, they were on fire for the Lord, uh, almost immediately facing persecution. In fact, that's the reason why Paul was there for such a short period of time, and he had to get out of town, is because they were coming after him. He saw it fit to leave because he didn't want to create any further issues for the church. And so uh, great things were happening here. A move of the Spirit was happening in the city. But what happened is in the haste at which Paul left the city, uh, he eventually sent Timothy back. Uh, They said, hey, we need to go check in on the church. We need to see how they're doing. Love that church. Love what we saw there in such a short period of time. We need to go check on them. We need to make sure that everything's continuing to progress well. And so Timothy goes back and he checks in with the church and they have a lot of questions about different things. And of course, he he finds that they're doing really well. And, And so as then Timothy comes back to Paul, he shares with them, here's the things that are going on. Here's the things that they're facing. Here's the questions that they have. And so the Apostle Paul then, as a result of the report from Timothy, says, okay, I'm going to write them a letter. Now, this is one of the first or the earliest letters that we have from the Apostle Paul. Though 1 Thessalonians falls after some of the other letters within the canon of Scripture, this is, many people believe, the first letter that he wrote. It's interesting because as we'll see in chapter 2 here tonight, Paul makes the comment that he wanted to come and see them again, but Satan prevented him, that he hindered them from coming. It's an interesting thing because when we read that, it should give us insight into the fact that, you know, Satan can sometimes cause issues in our lives. But if we trust, and as we know, and we often proclaim from Scripture that God works all things together for good, listen, the fact that Paul couldn't come to see them in person prompted him to write letters. Who knows if it wasn't the thing that prompted him to write many letters to the church over time that now today serve as uh, and comprise much of the New Testament that we have available to us. You see, God's always at work. And even when Satan thinks, and because Satan's plan, rest assured what Satan is attempting to do to every believer is to disrupt the plan of God by disrupting you, by disrupting your life. God desires to use you for his plan and purposes, to accomplish his will on this earth. So what do you think Satan wants to do? He wants to disrupt you. He wants to prevent you from doing that which God has called you to do. But even when that happens, as the Apostle Paul recognizes, God is still at work taking what it is that Satan may be attempting to do and saying, I'm working all these things together for good. My plan, my purposes will still be accomplished. And so this is what is happening here. In the church here, they do have a lot of questions. And one of the things in particular that they're very intrigued by 
that they want to know more about are pretty deep theological truths, doctrinal, foundational doctrinal things that even in a short period of time shows us that Paul really, even though they were young and new believers, he taught them. He didn't shy away from any of the topics that we often see in Scripture, much of which is related to end times prophecy, to the return of Jesus. And so for them, they had questions about this. And very much the theme of the letter here in 1 Thessalonians is is how they should live in light of Christ's return. They, believing that Jesus is going to come again, as each and every one of us should as believers, had some questions around what does this look like? They had some questions around that application in their lives, and much of what Paul is addressing with them is, here's how you should live your life as a Christian, especially as you anticipate the return of Christ. And so hopefully with that, we ourselves can understand then the application of this letter to our own lives. We too should be anxiously anticipating His return, looking forward to it, excited about it. And with that then, we should be thinking about, how do I live my life then today? How do I live my life in anticipation of His return? It should motivate what I do each and every day. We saw in the first chapter that it was really a recognition of how great they were. The Apostle Paul, recognizing in the, in the first chapter there, just what an example this church is. And I say is because they are still an example to us today. He says there in verse 2 of chapter 1, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you recall from our study last week, we focused in on those things, the work of faith that they demonstrated, how their faith worked, their faith produced fruit, their labor of love, that they were committed to demonstrating love towards one another, which was rooted in their love for Jesus Christ, and and their patience of hope, the fact that they were patiently waiting on the Lord Jesus Christ, and that that patience was influencing how they lived the rest of their life. And now we come into chapter 2, and what we see really in chapter 2, there's going to be three parts to it that we'll consider here tonight. And as is often the case with Scripture, what, what we see here is somewhat of a contextual component of the chapter, meaning it's in direct response or we need to consider what's happening here. For example, in the first part of this chapter, really in verses 1 through 12, what we see is Paul kind of defending the way in which he and others came to minister to them. Why does he need to defend it? Well, because he came under attack as a result of the work there of the Holy Spirit and the revival that happened, uh, many people didn't like it. And so they attacked Paul. They said that they said many things about him. He was a liar and a deceiver and that he had ulterior motives for the message that he was bringing to them, a number of different things. And so uh, in many respects, the first part of this is Paul just simply saying, look at what I did there. Look at how I live my life. He was uh, to some degree defending himself, not for the sake of, of those who he was writing to, they trusted him, they believed him, but for the sake of, uh, of what should be communicated to all those who, who were critical of Paul. But what then we see with that, and this would be sort of the second application, and this is how we'll make our way through this chapter here tonight, is that as Paul sort of explains, here's how I came to you, here's how I approached you, uh, as he defends uh, his work, what we then see in that is an example for us as believers today as to how we too ought to witness to other people, what our ministry should look like, what our testimony should be characterized by. And hopefully that makes sense. And so oftentimes this is the case in Scripture. And so let's go ahead and dive in here to the first section. Hopefully you'll see what I mean by that. And so let's read together uh, verses 1 through 7 together to to begin here tonight. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, "...for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain." 
But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Again, if you recall from uh, Acts chapter 17, we know that Paul came into Thessalonica. Uh, he came from Philippi, having just left Philippi. And, and as they came in there, uh, they were preaching the gospel. Revival was happening, and, and then people took note, and, and an angry mob came. And, and what they claimed here was that these men were turning the world upside down. That was, that was the result of the work that was happening here. And so, as I've mentioned, Paul then came under some criticism from religious leaders of varying uh, religions there in that area, whether that was the Jewish leaders that were in that particular area or whether that was uh, just other religions of various types that were in that area. At this particular time, there was a multitude of different religions. Of course, you had the, uh, the this was a heavily Romanized area, a Roman colony, and so they would took on many of the pagan traditions. And so all of these things were converging here, and they didn't like the truth of the gospel because it was shining light into darkness. And what Paul says here is he says, for you yourselves know, brethren, now he's addressing the church here, that our coming to you, it was not in vain. Uh, stated differently, it was not empty. It was not intended to be misleading. It was not as a salesman that I just was peddling some sort of message that uh, was for my personal gain, but ultimately was not going to have any value to you. No, it wasn't in vain. This was an authentic, pure message that he was sharing. It says again in verse 2, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. You see, that's one of the important things here. How could anybody think that Paul was out for something here when he was literally risking his life on a regular basis to bring the good news of the gospel to these people and to all those who he had an audience with. I mean, he faced a lot of difficulty here. He references what happened to him at Philippi. If you want to look for a moment, look at uh, in Acts in chapter 16. In Acts 16, uh, verses 23 and 24, we have an account of that. Acts 16, 23 and 24. Look at this. It says, And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This is in Philippi. Okay. And it's shortly after this that the Philippian jailer uh, gets saved. Once again, Satan does what? Satan tries to disrupt God's plans. Who is God trusting to carry out his plans? His sons and daughters, children, us. We, and what an incredible truth. Okay, can you give that some thought for a moment? We've, we've reflected on that a lot lately, that God desires to use you in His plan and for His purposes here on this earth. And so if Satan is all about disrupting the plans of God, well, then he's going to bring disruption into our lives. But we need to trust that even when those things come against us, and they do and they're hard, okay, this isn't about minimizing anything that you're going through. Trials are difficult. 
disruption in our life is hard. Go back and look at uh, Pastor Jimmy's devotion from Tuesday as he shares a little bit about uh, hope restored and the ministry that we're desiring to launch from this church. Listen, things come into our life, and those are difficult things, but Scripture teaches us how to handle those things. And in all of it, we need to trust that when these things come, God is still at work. Okay, and so look, for here, for, for Paul and Silas, Listen, they're ministering in Philippi. Good things are happening, but guess what? Satan doesn't like it, and Satan comes to disrupt those plans. And yes, there's stripes that are put upon them, okay? They're whipped. They're scourged here. This is painful. This is torture. This is the type of thing that, quite frankly, would cause some people to say, I give up. I'm done. It's over. I don't mean to criticize anybody because I wouldn't pretend myself to just always be some bold example like the Apostle Paul was, okay? There's plenty of times, there's plenty of regrets that I have as I look back at my own life and say, man, I wish I would have been more, more bold. I wish I would have been more confident here. Paul here, he has stripes laid upon him. He's tortured, literally tortured here. And he's thrown in prison and then they're put in stocks. But guess what happens? Someone gets saved. God moves. The Holy Spirit works. Okay, we can have confidence in this. But this is what Paul's referring to. These are the things that he's saying, look at what happened. And I came to you to preach the same gospel, to preach to you the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ after I'd just been tortured and imprisoned. He's saying, you, you know. You know that I, this isn't in vain. You know that this isn't for selfish gain. He says in verse 3, For our exhortation did not come from error, or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. That's what he's communicating. He says, our message is pure. Our motive is pure. We're genuine in our approach with you. In verse 4, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men. You could state that differently to try and understand it a little bit better, to be men pleasers. They're not coming to tell them what they want to hear but rather what they need to hear. We're not coming with this gospel that's intended to just make you feel good about yourself. No, we're coming with a true message that you need to understand and hear. But God who tests our hearts, right? He's saying they've been approved. God, based off of the work that they've done uh, and how God has worked in their life and tests them and they've shown themselves faithful, they're approved by God. They come to, come to them as true messengers of the gospel. Verse 5, for neither... Excuse me, for neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. He said, as God is our witness, we didn't come to you using flattering words. We didn't try and lure you in. We weren't trying to deceive you with anything. We weren't using the fruits of salvation as drawing cards to salvation, promising you that with Christ you get this, this, and this. And so that's why you need Jesus, but rather to tell you the truth of the fact that you have a relationship that is broken. You're not, you've not been reconciled to a holy and righteous God. Okay, they were honest in their approach. Nor, verse 6, did we seek glory from men either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. Listen, as apostles of Christ, they did have a reputation. There was some aspect of honor. There was some aspect of notoriety. They could have come in and probably with many people have said, well, we deserve this or you should treat us this way. But they didn't. They didn't seek glory from men. My goodness, what a difference we oftentimes see today within the church. 
And listen, this is a difficult thing, okay? When the age of, the age of multimedia, the age of social media, the age of the ability to take a message and reach so many different people, uh, the fact that in the church today that there is money to be made, the temptation there for men and women alike and their various giftings within the church to seek glory from men, whether it's as simple as that pat on the back or whether it's national or even worldwide notoriety. Paul here is saying we didn't seek any of that. We weren't seeking a name for ourselves. We were seeking just to exalt one name. He says we didn't seek glory from you or from others. What we see here is that he's defending his approach. He's defending their approach. He's saying we came to you with a pure message and we came to you with a pure motive to share the truth of the gospel. And he then goes on to say here in in verse 7, but we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother. And it's here at this point that Paul starts to make some analogies to different relationships. And as he makes this transition here, what we can look at is, of course, as I've just mentioned, this was, this was Paul's initial, this was his personal defense. This is how he came to you. But I think before we move on any further, it's important for us to recognize here that as we see Paul's defense, what he also gives to us is an example. It's his defense of himself and his approach with them, yes, but it's also the example. To those of us who want to live our lives in a way that's pleasing to the Lord, and to those of us especially who want to go about and be faithful in fulfilling the Great Commission and sharing the truth of the gospel with other people, what we see here in in Paul's life and the way that he approached them and the way that he described this here is this is to be for us also the motive and approach to sharing Christ. Whether as a pastor or whether as a servant within the church or whether as just an individual Uh, who's a child of God, a believer in Jesus Christ, who in the various interactions that they have in their life want to share the truth of the gospel. This is to be our approach, that it's a pure message with a pure motive, that there's no selfish gain, that we're kind and and we're gentle with others in our approach with them. And we'll see more of that here as Paul describes these various relationships. But I want us to understand that here, that that this, this is our example for how we share Christ with other people. Now, again, he goes on to say here and begins to make this analogy of a mother. And so uh, really here in verses uh, 7 through 11, we see that here's sort of this relationship as it pertains to being a mother, okay? This is the comforting side of Paul's approach with them. As he says, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, verse 8, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preached to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. We'll pause there. He says here, we came to you gentle among you, just as a nursing mother. Picture, if you will, a nursing mother. She cares. Everything about what she is doing is about caring for a young infant who's who's helpless in many respects, who, who is dependent upon her, who needs her. She's giving of herself. This is what Paul is saying that we came to you as. We came to you as one who cares, who wanted to comfort. He says that, We cherished you. Just like a mother cherishes her own children, we cherished you. 
so affectionately longing for you. Listen, this is him describing his relationship with this young church. Look at how he describes it. Think about your own relationships. Think about the way in which you approach those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Think about the way you approach those who you have had a hand in their salvation, maybe through your own witnessing or aspects of discipleship that you've provided for them. Do you approach them like a nurturing mother? Do you care for them? Do you want to comfort them? Do you want to encourage them? It says here, but they didn't impart to them only the gospel of God. And that's not to demean the gospel in any way, shape or form. But it says, but we also gave you our own lives. And so this once again gives us a pattern. As we share the truth of the gospel with people, and don't misunderstand me, there may be that opportunity where you have the person you're sitting next to on the, on the bus or on the plane, and, and you get the opportunity to share the gospel with them and really nothing more. You never have the opportunity to do anything else with them. I'm not saying that we shouldn't take those opportunities. But listen, real discipleship should happen within the local community and within the church, okay? And that doesn't just mean that you share the truth of God's word. It means you share the truth of God's word and you say, and I'm going to pour out my life for you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to help you. Listen, for me, I am aware of the fact that as it pertains to every person within this particular church, I haven't been able to personally walk with you through a trial. Many of you, yes. Some of you, not yet. But how shameful it would be for me as a pastor to just simply say, well, I'm, I'm only going to give you this and I'll do my best to teach you a good message. And then, and then I'm, I'm out of here. I'm distant from you. I don't want anything to do with you and your life. Now, praise the Lord. It's not just about me. I've got great elders and other servants and a whole church, a whole body full of people who are all seeking to do this. Because by the way, this isn't written to pastors. This is written to all of us as believers. And so uh, we have people here who understand this, who say, I'm going to do life with you because that's what we're called to do. It's not just about sharing the truth of the word. It's about saying, I'm going to help you to live it out. I'm going to pour out my life for you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to sacrifice. He says, but we gave you our own lives. Why? Because you had become dear to us. That labor of love that he recognizes in their lives, that that they're demonstrating, it's that same thing. Because we love you, care about you. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day. He's saying here, we got up early, we went to bed late, because this was important, this work was important. And we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. And look at the emphasis here over and over and over again that Paul puts on the gospel, the gospel, the good news, the good news, the good news, the good news. The gospel is so important. And they did everything they could to make sure that the gospel would go forth, whether that was in sharing it or whether that was in supporting it or giving themselves to it or making sure that they didn't have a poor witness by just saying, well, here's the word and we're going to go just do our own thing. They were pouring out their whole life into it. Again, to make the analogy there, just like a mother, Paul is not foolish in his wisdom here. No, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he, he sees fit to give the image and the example of a mother as he describes how he's poured himself out in service and sacrifice. Uh, he goes on then to say, in verse 10, you are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. Now, there's something incredible for us to consider here. Let's look for a moment at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. This is an important verse for us to consider as we seek to understand what Paul is saying here. In 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, this is an incredible verse, right? You've read this before. This is Paul also to the church in Corinth. He says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. 
My goodness, what a bold statement. Listen, how many of you, and you probably shouldn't put your hands up for this, how many of you go around on a regular basis and say, hey, everybody, do it like me. Listen, if you do that, stop, okay? Just stop it. Because chances are, listen, this is the Apostle Paul, okay? There, there is something special about this man. Can we get to this? Can we get to this place? Yes, I believe we can. Sanctification is a powerful thing. God, the, whole, the power of the Holy Spirit is an amazing thing. I'm not saying that there aren't mature believers today that I could look at and say, wow, look at their life. But man, that's something that you got to really be sure. Am I really living my life the way that the Lord wants me to live my life? Am I living my life in a way that's pleasing to Him, such that I could say, do it like me. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. How incredible. Now, here's what I would say as I sort of bring you down a notch if you were feeling like, yeah, that's me. Aspire to it, right? Each of us should be. In my own life, for me personally, I want to look at my life and say, man, could I say that? Could I, in every area of my life, be so confident that I'm living it in a way where I'm imitating Christ, where my life is pleasing to the Lord, that I could, with confidence and humble confidence, say to other people, watch my life. Look at my life. That should be our aim. But I would ask you, and I'll ask myself that same question, what area of your life might you say, no, I don't want anybody to imitate that? Because there might be some areas of your life where you would say, hey, I'm doing pretty well here. What area of your life would you say, I don't want anyone to imitate that? And then may I submit to you that you might just have your answer there in terms of what God wants to do in your life next. Because how can you honestly look at that area of your life and say, but it's okay, I'm just going to go ahead and leave it alone. No, that's not what we're called to. And listen, this isn't about legalism. This isn't about condemnation. This is about us looking at someone who's an example to us and saying, I want that. Because remember, uh, here's the other thing. Much in life, as you've heard the saying probably said before, is caught, not taught. So what are these areas in your life that people are naturally imitating because they're watching it, they're seeing it? We need to take that to heart. We need to be willing to say, okay, this is something in my life that needs to change because I, I can speak for myself at this point. I want to be able to say this. I do. I, want, I, I would love to be able to say, imitate my life as I imitate Christ. But there's still a lot of work left to be done. And so he says, He's able to say to them, here, listen, my life was lived devoutly, blamelessly, how we behaved ourselves among you. He says, our example was great. And verse 11, as you know, how we exhorted you and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Okay, so here's, here's now this other relationship that he's going to, look, going to look at. First, he talks about the mother. And what we have to recognize here is that from the motherly perspective, it was about comfort, it was about care, it was about nurturing. And now he goes on to say, and, and here, like a father, he says, I've charged you, I've challenged you. I've, I've basically said, are you living your life the way that you're supposed to live your life? There's a difference here. And praise God for it. God made them male and female, distinctly male and female. He's Now listen, we're not all the same. Each of us have different giftings. But at the end of the day, there is something very much distinct and different about men and women. 
women. And it's because God created us that way. And it's a wonderful thing. And we should embrace that. Okay. And so especially within the home with mothers and with fathers, generally speaking, and I'm not saying sometimes there's not a little bit of a difference here. And sometimes mom and dads, they have their way of, you know, one's the good guy, one's the bad guy sometimes in different things. Okay. I'm not addressing all of that. I'm just saying, generally speaking, mothers are good nurturers. I know in my own case, and my kids are probably watching right now, listen, if they get hurt, if they've got a bloodied knee, if there's any number of different things going on that they would love some some mercy for, they know who they're going to. Plain and simple. They know which of the two is going to nurture them. And they have probably come to expect that more often than not, I'm going to be the one that says, are you doing this? Are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? Now, that's not uh, an excuse for me to be mean, but that is a way in which God has created me. And I think it's wonderful to see here how the Apostle Paul recognizes this. He says, we've come to you and we've exhorted you. It means we've challenged you. Yes, there's comfort there, but it's comfort that comes from a place of charging them. He's saying, I'm pushing you here. What is he pushing them towards? What does he want them to understand here? He says, I'm pushing you, I'm challenging you, just like a father does to his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And you see, it's not because he doesn't love them. He's not hard on them or challenging them because he wants to be mean towards them. No differently than a father to his own children. He says, I want to see you do well. I want to see you live the life that God has created you for. I want to see you excel. I want to see you achieve the things that God has gifted you in to lay hold of that for which he has also laid hold of you, right? To obtain all that he has for you. We want our best. We want, the, we want the best for our children, right? We want to see them accomplish things. We want to see them achieve things. We want to push them towards that. That's what he's saying here of his own uh, view towards this church is I want to see you walk worthy of that calling. Now, it's important for us to consider here for a moment, what does that mean? Because I want us to pause for a minute here and make sure that we don't assume something that we shouldn't. When he says here that you would walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory, it would be easy for us, I think, here to say, well, there's a certain standard that God has for all of us, for me in my own life, and I've got to work really hard to achieve that, to live that. And there would be aspects of truth within that, but we got to be careful that we don't suddenly think that somehow it's on us and it's about our works that somehow cause us to achieve what God has for us. Because remember, it's the work of Christ upon the cross, right? That is our identity. Our identity is in Christ, and it's not about achieving. It's what He has done for us. But similar to what we covered in chapter 1, as Paul recognized their, their work of faith, that yes, it should, it should result in, in actions in our life. There should be things that we go and do, but we got to be careful that we don't suddenly come to a place where it's all about us and the work that we have to do or the things that we have to achieve. We need to understand this here. Paul uses this language elsewhere, and if you want to look there for a moment, he, he uses this language in a couple of different places, but most notably in a Ephesians. In Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 1, Ephesians 4, 1, we, we see also there an exhortation that comes from Paul where he says to the church in Ephesus, a church that he loved very much, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling 
with which you were called. Again, we see similar language there where he's challenging them. Walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Walk worthy. Live your life, if I were to state it differently, in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. But it's important for us to note just a little bit earlier on in this prayer that he prays for this church just before he challenges them. Remember, look at this here in verse 1. I therefore, what does that teach us? Well, that statement is there for a reason. It connects us to what he had said previously. And this is that wonderful prayer that he prays for this church. What does he pray for them? In verse 14, he says, for this reason, this is in Ephesians 3, 14, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, this is his prayer for them, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. You see, his prayer for them was that they would be strengthened by what? His spirit. The spirit of God working in them, and that spirit kind of working out, uh, making things happen in their lives. And so it's important that we note this here. Are we to walk worthy of the calling that God has placed on our lives? Yes. Are we to live our lives in a way that's pleasing to Him? Yes. Are we to live our lives in a way where it brings glory to God, that we don't bring uh, uh, shame upon His name? Yes. But how does that happen? By the Holy Spirit that's working in you. So, lest you wake up tomorrow and say, I've got to walk worthy. I've got to be disciplined. I've got to go after it. Those things are right. Be disciplined. Go after it. But go in the Holy Spirit. Go knowing that it's Him working in you. And how do you get more of Him working in you as you continually surrender yourself more and more to Christ? So you wake up in the morning and the first thing you do is not go to the mirror and say, yeah, here we go. I'm going to get this done today. But you go, okay, Lord, I'm here. I'm yours. I surrender. You come into a time of worship at church. What is worship about? We need to understand this, folks. If you heard me say it before, great. I'm glad you remembered. I'm going to say it again. Worship is about surrender. Yes, we have praise and worship. It's saying, thank you, God. It's praising him. It's magnifying his name. Isn't that amazing that we can do that, that we can magnify the name of God, that we can exalt the name of God. It's almost as if, how do I do that? You're already exalted. You're already above all things. But because of how this works and how he uses us, that we can praise him. We can lift his name. We can magnify his name. But the other part of worship is about surrender. It's about laying your life down. As you worship in songs, you worship in the study of his word, you say, Lord, my life is not my own. As, As Paul says here, I therefore what? the prisoner of the Lord. It's about saying, Lord, I'm yours. My life is not my own. It belongs to you. And I give it over to you daily. And yes, Lord, I have these desires and these things in my life that are fleshly and I don't want them there anymore. And so I crucify them. Every day I work, Lord, to say, I don't want this in my life anymore. Lord, I'm yours. Do with me as you will. And and Lord, could I ask that you'd give me a fresh outpouring of your spirit? The spirit, remember, works in three different ways. The spirit is with us, drawing us under repentance. No man comes to the father unless the spirit himself draws him. We were lost. I didn't have it in my mind that I need Jesus. The Holy Spirit began to make me aware of my own sinfulness, drawing me unto himself, an incredible act of his grace and his mercy. And I came to a place where I surrendered my life to Christ. And at that point, the Holy Spirit came into me and dwelt me and sealed me, put a guarantee, a promise of salvation upon me. And that Holy Spirit is within me today. The the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is dwelling in me, and it's dwelling in you too, Christian. But we also believe that the Spirit functions in a third way and empowers us. It comes upon us. And I believe that each and every day we can ask for a fresh outpouring of His Spirit. Say, Lord, equip me today for what I need to do. 
And so all of that to say that as you seek to walk worthy of God, that you do it because of His Spirit that is working in you and upon you. It's not about you, it's about Him. And so we want more of Him. And so make it your prayer, right, to say, Lord, search my heart and know me. See if there's any wicked way in me. Lord, strip me of things that are not of you, Lord. Are you willing, perhaps, even to pray such radical prayers as to say, Lord, break me. Lord, do what's necessary in my life to rid me of those things where I would say, as we mentioned earlier, that, Lord, I don't want anybody to imitate this in my life. I don't like this in my life. Lord, take it from me. All of these different things, taking it to the Lord such that His Holy Spirit is working in you more and more and more so that you do live your life in a way that's worthy of Him. But it's because of His work in your life. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And maybe as we continue to do that, we find ourselves along this road, along this journey, sometime saying, Hey, Christian, watch how I do it. Imitate my life as I imitate Christ. Maybe we could get to that place. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. You see in the first section there in verses 1 through 12, again, what we saw there was both Paul's defense of how he approached them, how he lived his life before them, but it also gives to us our example, our motive and our approach to how we share Christ with others, to how we live our lives in this lost world. That's what we see there in that first section. And so it's how we approach them. We come as a mother. We come as a father. We live our lives in a particular way. And that's the how, if you will. That's the how... uh, in which we share the gospel. How do I share Christ with people? Well, you do it that way. You you live a life that way. And what we come to here in these next verses, in verses 13 through 16 here, is is really the, the what. This is what we should then seek to see happen in the lives of those who we are witnessing to or sharing Christ with. And the first thing that we see happen here, Paul mentions that it happened with them, is that they welcomed the Word of God uh, into their lives. They didn't welcome it as words from men. They didn't look at this and say, well, this is, this is just a wonderful inspirational speech. No, they said, truly, right, this is, this is truth. This is the Word of God. And so they received it into their lives. And, and because of that, then, Paul said, which also he essentially says, look, it, it's working in your life. There's a difference in your life. There's change. Okay, and, and so this is this is the what that we should see when we witness to people or the what that should be uh, demonstrated when we ourselves come to Christ is that it changes. We look at the word of God and we say this this is the word of God and we defend it vehemently. We don't just say, well, this is this is some book. This is an inspirational book. No, we say this isn't the words of men. This is the words of God given by the Holy Spirit to men who who wrote them on the pages and gave it to us today. This this is the word of God, which is living and active and, and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. This book, furthermore, has changed my life. And so I would ask you, do you welcome the Word of God into your life? Do you, do you defend it as such? Do you believe it? 
I mean, do you absolutely believe it? We touched on this three weeks ago in our study of Ezekiel. Uh, do you believe the word of God such that you know that it can, it can bring dry bones to life, that it can change people's life, that it has in fact changed your life? Do you believe that? Listen, you must. There's no way around that. You have to believe that this is the word of God and that this is how he speaks to us by his spirit. And do you welcome it into your life? Or do you use a highlighter in your Bible that actually says Sharpie on the side of it? Oh, I don't like that. Oh, I don't like this. And you begin to pick and choose. You know, adding to Scripture and taking away from Scripture, that was the fault of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Are you one of them? In the end of it all, in Revelation, it says very clearly to John, he who takes away or adds to this book, and I paraphrase, all this wrath will be poured out upon them. Do you believe this is the Word of God? That it has, in fact, changed your life and that it has the power to change others' lives and to continue to give you what you need? This church here did. They were an example of that, and Paul was recognizing that. And then he goes on to encourage them. Again, this is the fruit that should be seen in their life, that they love the Word of God, they receive the Word of God, the Word of God changes their life. And then he goes on to basically say, and listen, this persecution that you're experiencing now, you're not alone. You're not alone. He encourages them with the fact that they are experiencing common persecution, that those people that are coming against them, they came after others as well, including the Lord Jesus Christ. As he said there, who, verse 15, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. It'd be a wonderful reference to consider what Peter says in 1 Peter 4.13. 1 Peter 4.13, he talks about trials and the way in which we should consider them as we experience in them in our own lives and the persecution that may come our way. As he says, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Do you know when you experience persecution, when somebody comes to you and says, you're an absolute, and this may be minor persecution, but you're a fool if you think this is the word of God, that this book has any power to change your life, that this book doesn't have errors in it, that it, that this would actually be the word of God, to make fun of you and tease you about that, or shame you. Well, hey, praise the Lord, because though the name of God is blasphemed in that, He's glorified through you and your powerful witness. And so, again, what's happening here is, is these are the things that will happen in the life of those who are converted, who come to Christ. That they believe the Word of God, they receive the Word of God, they're changed by the Word of God, that they face trials, they face persecution. But when they do and when we do, we take comfort in the fact that we're not alone and the fact that we are being persecuted brings glory to God. Let's just go ahead and read the last few verses here. Verse 17, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, but not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown or rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. Look, that's the end of the chapter. And so I'm going to go ahead and begin to end here and say that I did it. I made it through the chapter. While in the first section, we see the how. How are we to share Christ with other people? Well, we see it in the example of how Paul lived. He's our example to us in that regard and in this letter. In the second section, we see what, meaning, okay, here's the how, and then there's the what. What should we see in the life of the believer? And finally, why? Why do it? 
Why endure what Paul did? Because we love them. Because we love people. I mean, we see that demonstrated here in what Paul says. He says, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time, he notes it's in present, in presence, not in heart. And I would say, what a, what a fitting passage of Scripture for us right now as we contemplate coming back together here in two weeks. We've been taken away from each other for a short period of time, but in presence, not in heart. We continue to pray for one another, encourage one another, gather together in whatever way we can, because we're the body of Christ, because we're brothers and sisters in Christ, because we love one another. Satan may be at work. Satan may have hindered some things. Satan may be at work in preventing the body of Christ from having gathered together over the last several weeks, but rest assured, God is at work. He's working all things together for good. That we are, in fact, seeing revival happen. We're seeing wonderful things happen in our own community and around the world. We can be confident that, yes, there is spiritual warfare happening. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers of darkness. But God is still at work. And why do we continue to press on? Why do we take heart? Why do we remain encouraged? Well, Paul says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Paul says to them, you're my crown. You're my crown. You're my reward. Of course, yes, we have an internal reward of being there in, in heaven together. But remember, it's, it's Paul and only Paul who we have is quoted in Scripture as saying, I wish myself to be accursed for my brethren. You see, as I've often said, there is the Apostle Paul says, listen, and I'll paraphrase for you, I'll go to hell for you. I love you so much. I don't want to see anyone else perish. Paul was so aware of who he was, of how sinful he was, of the things that he had done. And he said, I'm going to do everything I can to get the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ out to as many people as possible. And if I myself are accursed, let it be so that they would be in heaven. And so rest assured, Paul absolutely believes here that while, yes, eternal life and glory in heaven is a wonderful thing, and it's what each of us are motivated by because it's about us and our reward, and I'm not calling you selfish. For Paul, it was you. You're my crown. The fact that there are going to be other people standing before God, going into glory, that's my crown. That's all the reward that I need. He demonstrates for us why. Why do we do this? Why do we press on? Why do we persevere? Why would we do the things that we do? Because we should have a love for other people and a joy that's just overwhelming when we, when we are a part of leading other people to Christ. Friends, this is how we are to live our life in light of His return. We're called to live our lives as wonderful examples surrendered to the Holy Spirit, living our lives in a way where we lead other people to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we do it because we want to see more people in heaven. Now, yes, am I all about, hey, let's go to heaven together? You betcha. But do we have this heart for other people? This is what we're called to here. And this is what this church was living out. They were being commended for this very work, which tells me we can do it too. Amen? Let's close. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you and praise you. Father, we recognize tonight how wonderful you are. And your greatness, Lord, is beyond our understanding. Lord, that you would do for us what you have done, what you have accomplished. That you would continue to promise, Lord, so many things that have yet to be fulfilled to us. Lord, your grace is overwhelming. And Father, I pray for each of those who have gathered together here tonight. Lord, bless them, encourage them, strengthen them, and help each of us, Lord, myself included, to live this out. To live our lives in such a way where we are above reproach, we are blameless, where our lives and our words point other people to you, Lord Jesus, and that we would have such an overwhelming love 
for other people. That, Lord, we would have confidence in your return. And that, Lord, knowing that, that at that time there might be some who would perish, Lord, that we would just commit within our own lives, Lord, in our own hearts to say, I, I won't let that happen. I'll do as much as I can possibly do. I'll pour my life out to reach others with the truth of the gospel, that they would not perish. And that, yes, Lord, we'll be thankful for our eternal reward, but that maybe even more so we'd be motivated by seeing others standing there with us, rejoicing in your presence. Father, do that work in our hearts, Lord, for I know that this is difficult work. There's much flesh that needs to be dealt with to have such a selfless approach. I need it, Lord, and I trust others do too. So, Lord, do that work within us, I pray. Transform the heart of Calvary Chapel Northeast, Lord. Give us boldness to share the truth of the gospel, Lord. Continually, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.